0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Todd Talks Bible. This engaging, discipleship based Bible study is sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. And our teacher is Todd Tolles, the founder and director of CDM. A career firefighter captain before entering the ministry, Todd founded Church Discipleship Ministries to equip and empower believers to fulfill your calling to be a spiritual warrior dedicated to fulfilling the Great Commission. Let's listen in now as Todd Talks Bible.
1: So we're at Revelation chapter 12 in our study, and i got to ask, who's the woman? Let's talk about that coming up next. Hi, brothers and sisters. My name is Todd Toles with Church Discipleship Ministries. I want to welcome you to our Discipleship program, Todd Talks Bible. We're kind of at the halftime in the book of Revelation. Yeah, that's right. Just like the Super Bowl is going to have a long halftime show, We're kind of seeing the same thing in the book of Revelation here at chapter 12. You see, John is still kind of playing catch-up, trying to get us caught up to what all is going on in the world during the trumpet's judgment. Now, even though this isn't a real interlude, because it didn't break up the action of the trumpets, it's very important stuff for us to understand because it is setting the groundwork for what's going to happen and the next part of the book, when we start looking at the bowl judgments. So all the events in chapters 12 through 14 are events that was happening throughout history, all the way up through the trumpet judgments. Now, how do I know this? Well, it's pretty simple. Flip over to Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 1. In verses 1 through 5 of this chapter, you'll see that there's the 144,000 Jewish people up there having a special worship service with Jesus. And they're singing a new song that only they can sing because they were the ones that helped spread the gospel during this first part of the seven-year time of Jacob's distress. And it obviously is happening at the midpoint here because if you read on, that's when the bowl judgments start. So, since the... 144,000 Jews are not up in heaven until that point, and they started at the beginning of the trumpet judgments, then it's pretty clear that this last three and a half years is what's going on. And in chapter 12, 13, and 14, we're still there in the first half of the time of Jacob's distress, that three and a half year period, and the first half of it where all these events are taking place. And again, like I say, this is kind of John's way of catching us all up to what's been going on uh, on the world during these events. And as you'll see here throughout history, setting the stage for the last half of the time of Jacob's distress. So let's hop right in into chapter 12 and let's see what's going on here, because chapter 12 is an important history lesson that John gives us in his vision. Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out in the pain of labor as she awaited her delivery. Suddenly I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his head. His tail dragged down one-third of the stars which he threw to the earth. He stood before the woman as she was about to give birth to her child, ready to devour the baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a boy who was to rule all nations with an iron rod. And the child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to give her care for 1260 days. So here in these first six verses, John is setting the stage to reveal to us the kingdom of Satan and everything that's going to transpire after this point in the rest of the book of Revelation. And to do that, he has to set the stage with three main characters. The woman, the male child, or the boy, and the red dragon. And these characters will come into play throughout the rest of the book. Now let's look at it. Who is this woman? Well, I think the woman represents the nation of Israel. Now, how do I know that? Well, look at the reference to where it says, clothed with the sun, uh, standing on the moon, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So here she is, clothed with the sun, the moon is beneath her feet, and she's got 12 stars, kind of like in a crown around her head. Now, this is almost the exact imagery that Joseph used to refer to himself and his family back in Genesis. Let me read this. Joseph had a dream. As you know, he had a lot of visions, and he had a vision here that he related to his family. Genesis 37, verse 9 through 11 says this. Then he, referring to Joseph, dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. So his father, Jacob, kept thinking about that. Now, immediately you're going to sit there and say, but he only had 11 stars in the dream. Well, it was 11 stars bowing down to him. He was the 12th star. So I think that imagery of the 12 stars, the sun and the moon, is being carried over into this chapter to let us know this is the nation of Israel. And also, if you want to get spiritual about it, you could kind of see how the nation of Israel and all the Mosaic law we know from studying in Hebrews is a shadow of the real way God wanted things to be with Christ living within us and the gospel of his salvation. So the sacrifices of the Old Testament were shadows of Christ's sacrifice, and we know this. And in a way, that's kind of like the moon, isn't it? The moon doesn't have its own light, it reflects the light of the sun. Just like the Mosaic law didn't have any light of its own, it was simply reflecting the true light of Jesus' sacrifice and his gospel of salvation. So there's two reasons there, I think, that are very strong to suggest that this is the nation of Israel. But it's also a third piece of evidence, but we'll come to that near the end when we look at the character of the male child. Let's go on to character number two. The next character that's talked about is in verse three, suddenly I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. So, and it talked about how his tail dragged down a third of the stars with him. And we talked about how we think that is the angels that went in rebellion with him and later became demons. So who is this dragon? Well, I kind of got you gave you a hint because we talked about it already. The red dragon is Satan, of course, and it's pretty easy to figure out. Look at verse 9. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world was thrown down to the earth with his angels. So right there in the vision, it tells us who the red dragon is. It's Satan. Also, in Revelation 20, verse 2, we see the same answer given to us. Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to start in verse 1. Then I saw an angel come down from heaven with a key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent, the devil, Satan and bound him in chains for a thousand years. So again, Satan is being referred to as the old serpent, the dragon. Now, what does that mean? And the and the horns and the heads and the seven crowns on the seven heads. Well, you may you know get confused here, and a lot of people start looking at all this imagery in the book of Revelation. And they start trying to come up with all kinds of weird uh, explanations of the imagery and what it means. And there's really no need to do that. The Bible has given us the key to all this imagery. If you ever studied the book of Daniel, and I highly encourage that you do so, Daniel has several prophecies about the future of mankind and the governments that will rise up and fall down throughout history. And these governments are all represented by different beasts. And so Daniel has these visions. And the book of Daniel is real easy to understand because every time he's trying to figure out what it is, an angel pops up and explains what the imagery is. So if you read through Daniel, you'll see the following trend. And that's why Daniel is the key to understanding the book of Revelation. Daniel's key... In the book of Daniel, it says that beasts, always has beasts representing empires or kingdoms. You know, huge kingdoms. Today, what we would call empires. Huge kingdoms that have many kings underneath the head king. So, empires is what we'd call it today. So, the beasts always represent these huge empires. Heads always represent divisions of these kingdoms or these empires. For instance, if you had a huge empire and you had six different kings that you took over to make this empire, then your empire was divided up into six divisions, and it would be represented by six heads on some beast. Horns always represent these vassal kings over these Uh, little divisions in your empire. So getting back to our uh, mythical example, if you had an empire and you had six countries that you took over to make your empire, then you would have, and that was the six heads, then you would also have probably six vassal kings running each of those divisions of your empire and they would be the horns. So that's the key we see in the book of Daniel. And this key is going to come up a lot in Revelation chapter 13, and later on throughout the book. Now, understand something, though. There's a big difference here. What did I say the key of beasts represented? It represented empires, right? But this isn't a beast, is it? It is a red dragon, it says. Now, in Revelation 13, verse 1, it says, I saw a beast rising up. But in Revelation 12, it says a red dragon. So there's already a difference here. And if a beast in Revelation 13 represents an empire, and when we study it later, you'll see that it does, then the red dragon is different than the beast. But why is there so much similarities? And this is what gets people confused. They say, well, the beast in 13 sounds just like the beast in 12. Ah, but it doesn't. There's several important differences. One of it is, it's not a beast in Revelation 12, it's a red dragon. But the key thing is, don't confuse a beast or a kingdom that Satan has put in power with the representation of Satan himself. Why is Satan presented as a red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on his head? Well, I think it's quite simple it's like father like son if satan is behind an empire if you have a satanic ran or uh, empire dedicated to evil that satan behind the scenes is is running maybe even through possessing of the leader of this empire or whatever but if satan is is at the heart of some unrighteous nation and there's been plenty of those in history then that nation is going to reflect Satan, just like a son looks like his father. So Satan's traits, his characteristics, will be embedded in whatever empire he is manipulating to do his evil work. Satan is a liar, Jesus told us, a liar from the beginning and a murderer from the beginning. And every evil empire, if you'll notice, has lying in it, uh, the leaders are liars, they're always trying to deceive people, and there's a lot of backstabbing and murdering going on in these evil empires in history, isn't it? And by the way, that's a rule of thumb. If you want to know if a politician is a good politician to vote for, check his record of things he's said in the past. Is he a liar? Then he's not of God, he's of the devil, because Satan's the father of all lies. If he's honest, then check further and see if there's other reasons why. But honesty is a good point, so you check further and see if he's a good person sincerely. But if you ever catch someone lying, or a politician lying, or a leader lying, you can bet your bottom door, dollar. You can bet your bottom dollar that Satan is is giving that person strength. Satan is behind the scenes with that politician leader because Satan is the father of all lies. No one who lies has the spirit of God controlling them. That's a fact. So the red dragon is Satan. Now let's look at some of the other imagery. He has seven heads in this representation. And that indicates that there have been seven empires that Satan has been behind the scenes with. And if you look at biblical history, You'll be able to spot these seven empires pretty quickly because they're empires that always had something to do with ruling over Jerusalem, either attacking Jerusalem and ruling over it for a short time or even a long time like uh, Rome did. And we're going to come up to these different empires later. So I'm not going to tip my hand yet and tell you everything about them. We'll look at that when it comes up later in the book of Revelation. But you just for right now, you got to understand that these heads represent these seven great empires and divisions in history where Satan's kingdom uh, was ruling and influencing uh, Israel in a very negative way. It was controlling Israel. It had political control over Israel. Now, it said it had ten horns. Well, I think it's because in the context of chapter 12 in the book of Revelation, that the ten horns represent ten kings, that there will be this one world government backed by Satan. We've already talked about with the first seal, and this is the ten kingdom confederation that uh, we talked about in the book of Daniel and also with the first seal. So that's showing that there will be a, a world government backed by Satan that is a ten king confederation. The days of the ten kings is this worldwide government that we've been talking about. Then it says, but there's only seven crowns. And note what the seven crowns are. They're on the heads, not the horns. Well, that indicates to me that the imagery here of the red dragon waiting for the baby to be born, okay, so he could devour the baby, Waiting for the baby to be born. At that point in time, Satan's kingdoms had not all come to fruition. He had seven with seven crowns, but there were no, uh, horns with any crowns on them. And I think that represents the fact that obviously all of Satan's kingdoms did not occur At the time that this child was being born from Israel. Think about this. Whenever this child was being born, some of the nations that are involved in this 10 kingdom confederacy and Satan's worldwide empires of the future haven't come to knowledge yet. Now, to understand exactly when this period is, let's see who the third character is, this boy, this male child. It says in verse 5, she, referring to the woman, the nation of Israel, gave birth to a boy who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and the child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God into his throne. Who's that? Well, obviously, yes, you're right. The boy is the Messiah Jesus. The rod of iron gives it away, doesn't it? It's pretty simple once you start knowing the Bible and what it says in other places. Let's read Psalm 2, verse 7 through 9. I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There was that phrase, the rod of iron, and, and the Jehovah God was saying to his son, Jesus, you will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And that's the exact same phrase here. So it's clear that this is Jesus. Plus, who else was caught up to heaven? Who else had Satan out to get him, to devour him, to destroy him, to kill him? But he was caught up into heaven. Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and then was caught up into heaven. So that is Jesus. Now, let's put that all together. The woman is the nation of Israel. She gives birth to a son that we know to be Jesus. And at the time that Satan, the great red dragon, Satan was trying to devour Jesus. So back there in the early part of the first century, Around 25 to 30 AD, we think Jesus started his ministry around 25 AD and somewhere got crucified between then or close around 30, 33 AD, somewhere around there. So right about that time, Satan's trying to devour Jesus, right, and destroy his work on the cross. Who was in power? Rome. And was Rome being used to rule over Israel? Yes. One was an evil empire. Yes, especially in the last days, the way it persecuted Christianity. So you can see that this was during the time of one of Satan's empires. But at that moment in history, you know, there was no crowns. There was no King Confederacy. There was only seven heads mentioned because that was all the empires up until that time. Think about it a lot of the world hadn't been conquered yet. No one in Europe even knew about the new world yet. Nothing about the Americas. So it's obvious that at that point in history, Satan's empires would only reflect as many heads as it had uh, influence, I think, up until that point. So you have a great red dragon with seven heads, and I think the seven heads represent different empires He's controlled throughout history. I think the ten horns, as you'll see, will come into play later. It's the ten kingdom confederacy. And the reason there's only seven crowns on the heads and not the ten kings is because some of the kingdoms of these ten kings hadn't even been discovered yet. Let's look now at the war in heaven. The war in heaven. Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 7. Then there was war in heaven. Michael and the angels under his command fought the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle and was forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has happened at last, the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, for the accuser has been thrown down to the earth, the one who accused our brothers and sisters before our God day and night, and they have defeated him because of the blood of the lamb and because of their testimony, and they were not afraid to die. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice, but terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, and he knows that he has little time. So the first thing to notice about this war in heaven is that Satan obviously had access to heaven. And this goes along with what else we know about the Bible. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, for instance, it talks about Satan and the other angels being called up to heaven to report to God. And even then, Satan was designated the accuser, and God had that conversation with him about Job, and that led to Job's whole adventure that's recorded in the book of Job. Also in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, Satan is accusing a high priest there in that passage the high priest Joshua, and he's accusing him of being unworthy to lead a revival and help get the temple going. And that is going on in that book of prophecy. So throughout the Old Testament, we see this imagery of Satan being the accuser. Now this passage in Revelation chapter 12 kind of indicates that this war in heaven, when Satan is finally cast out, It kind of uh, indicates that this occurs at the midpoint of the seven-year judgment, known as the time of Jacob's distress. Exactly when? I don't know. Could it happen once the rapture comes up and we go up to heaven and they have a war and cast him out then? Did it happen before then? I don't know. But the point is, at some point in time, Satan is cast out from heaven. And just like the angels rejoice, they say, This is great news! Because the salvation is here and the accuser has been thrown down. And brothers and sisters, you need need to rejoice in that too. Satan will not accuse you before God. When you go up to heaven and the time of when you meet Christ and you get your rewards, there's nothing up there with Satan accusing you and saying you don't deserve to go up to heaven. The victory is there. So regardless of when... God finally kicks him out of being having able to have access to him. The accuser because of the blood of the lamb has no more power over you. Listen to what it says again. The accuser has been thrown down to earth, the one who accused our brothers and sisters before the Lord God, uh, Lord our God day and night, and they have defeated him because of the blood of the lamb. So the blood of the lamb it covers you, and Satan will not accuse you anymore. But whenever it happens, he gets cast down, and the angel says this, But terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, and he knows that he has little time. So the devil, Satan, the great red dragon gets cast out, and he knows his time's almost up, and he goes wild. He goes wild. And he just starts having vengeance upon everyone. Well, what's he do? Well, let's read about it. In verse 13, Revelation 12, verse 13. And when the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the child. But she was given two wings like those of a great eagle. This allowed her to fly to a place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and half a time. Then the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from its mouth, but the earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon. Then the dragon became angry at the woman, and he declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and confess that they belong to Jesus. So like I said, Satan is full of vengeance now going wild. And who's he attacking? Israel. He's trying to, to destroy Israel. Everything about Satan's war has been trying to stop God's plan. He knew if he could wipe out Israel, that would stop the Messiah from coming. So that's what he tried doing in the Old Testament, but it didn't work. He knew that if he could get Jesus to not go to the cross, that would stop God's plan of salvation, and that's why he offered to give Jesus everything he owned if he would bow down and worship him, like we talked about last week. But that didn't work, and now he knows he's been cast out of heaven, the judgments are coming, the trumpet judgments have already been blown, and at some point in time during this time of Jacob's distress, he is cast out during these last days, and he realizes he does not have much time, and so what does he do? He goes after the nation of Israel, trying to wipe them out. Now, it says the wings of a great eagle come to rescue the lady. Now, and it says that the wings took her to fly to a place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she'd be cared for and protected from the dragon for time, times, and half time, or three and a half years. Now, the southwest of Israel in the area of the Sinai Peninsula has typically always been called the wilderness throughout the Old Testament. A lot of people that were living in the wilderness, that's the area they were in. Kind of like Ishmael, that was the area he was in. When he uh, left Abraham, when Abraham had to send him and his mother away, uh, Ishmael eventually settled in that wilderness area. So around the Sinai Peninsula, kind of in the northern part of the peninsula. That typically is where the wilderness is. And it says that an eagle, two wings, I should say, of a great eagle, helped Israel to escape. Now a lot of people think, well, maybe this is America mentioned. Well, it could be. But you got to understand something. If America is still in existence, and there's no reason to think that it is, but if America is still in existence at this point during the time of Jacob's distress, when Israel is being persecuted so you know uh, severely, well, it, it, America is not an authority anymore because this is going to happen during the time of the ten kings, that one world government. So, but also, it doesn't say the eagle itself; it says the wings of the eagle. Maybe it could be referring to all of the. Jet fighter planes: America has sold Israel uh, all through the years. I mean Israel has a top notch air force with some of the most cutting edge equipment. When we develop it, we give it to our people and we sell it to them too. So it could be that. It might just be referring to fighter planes and and the Israeli army is, is protecting the Israeli people after they had to leave Jerusalem from whatever this persecution is that's taking hold. Or, and this is probably the most likely one, this could just be a metaphor, talking about how fast the people in Israel had to leave once Satan started trying to wipe them all out. Now, let's go back to this three and a half years that's mentioned. This is the same uh, time frame that was mentioned in verse 6. In verse 6, it talked about 1,260 days. And in this verse, in verse uh, 14... It talks about three and a half years. Is that significant? Yes, indeed. This is the framework. This is the basis of why we say the time period of Jacob's distress is only seven years, because it talks about how it's divided in half, something going on in the first three and a half years with the trumpets and the prophets, and then something going on in the last three and a half years with the bold judgments and the severe persecution of the nation of Israel, where Satan's trying to literally wipe them all off the map. And this is in fulfillment of a very key prophecy in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, Daniel has been praying, and he asks for what's going to be Israel's future. And an angel is sent down to give him the answer. And it's a fascinating chapter, and you need to read it. Uh, it's just fascinating what all happens to give Daniel this message. But I just want to read the actual prophecy, and then we're going to explain how it fits into Revelation. So Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 24. Seventy weeks has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in the times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood even to the end there will be war desolations are determined and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, the first thing to note in this prophecy in the book of Daniel is that obviously he's not talking about 70 weeks. In fact, in the Hebrew it says 77s. Uh, and when you look at it throughout history, you'll see that he's obviously talking about years. So he's basically saying 70 periods of seven-year periods, okay? 70 cycles of seven-year periods is a better way of saying it. And 70 of these seven-year periods have been decreed for the nation of Israel. That's 490 years, right? 70 times seven years per each week is 490 years. And it says 490 years have been decreed to make an everlasting, well, let me read the whole thing. It's very interesting. To make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So, a 490 prophetic years have been decreed to bring us salvation and stop sin, and to bring everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So it's talking about 490 years of prophetic years have been decreed to wrap everything up, the gospel, salvation, to seal up the need where we don't even need a prophet anymore because it's all been fulfilled, and to anoint the most holy place, which is, of course, Jerusalem, but it's talking about heaven because we talked about how there was a temple up in heaven and the most holy place up there with the Ark of Covenant. So it's talking about all this stuff will be resolved in these 490 prophetic years. Now, how is this prophecy fulfilled? Well, Artaxerxes gave the first decree to rebuild Jerusalem in 458 BC. Now, a lot of people say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you should be counting Cyrus. That's when Cyrus gave his decree to let the Jewish people go back to Jerusalem. Ah, but what did Daniel's prophecy say? Did it say they could go back to build the temple? No. He made it real clear. He said, from the time you hear the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So Cyrus did let the Jewish people go back and start working on the temple, but they weren't allowed to rebuild Jerusalem or set up a government. It wasn't until Artaxerxes gave his first decree in 458 BC. He told Ezra to go back, take exiles with you, and to start up a government. He said, train judges, teach them the law, get the infrastructure of a government going. And Ezra started doing that. Then later on, Artaxerxes gave a second decree and sent Nehemiah over there to build up the walls. And that's exactly what Daniel was saying. Verse 25, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So it's clearly talking about being rebuilt. And the plaza indicates that there's going to be an uh, uh, an area separating the buildings to something else. And that's, a plaza is what you call the space between the buildings and the wall. So it's talking about having a wall built. And the, the phrase, the moat, is also talking about that, the defenses outside a wall. Was it a real moat? I don't know. But that's the same type word you'd use for anything, even if it was just, you know, some type of barriers outside of the wall. So here is explicit language from Daniel. And the angel telling exactly Daniel, telling Daniel exactly what was going to happen that from the time that decree to rebuild to the time of the Messiah was going to be seven sets of weeks plus 62 sets of weeks, or a total of seven plus 62 is 69 sets of weeks, or 69 cycles of seven. What's 69 times seven? It's 483 years. 458 B.C. is when this decree took place. And they said, go and rebuild, including the walls, later on. So 458 B.C., and if you count 483 years to the future on a calendar, you end up at 25 A.D. 25 A.D., and that is when Jesus most probably started his ministry. We think he was born around 4 or 5 B.C., and the Bible says he was around 30 years old when he started his ministry, so that's around 25 B.C. So this prophecy of Daniel is hyper-accurate. Hyper-accurate. And look what else it says. It says that after, you know, this 62 weeks, after these uh total of 69 weeks or 483 years when the Messiah is there during his ministry, look what it says happens the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Did the Messiah die? Yes, Messiah died. And it appeared that nothing happened, but we know different, don't we? He he rose up again and went up to heaven and brought salvation on earth. So the Messiah was cut off and he resurrected again. Then it says, and the prince, excuse me, and the people, that's key, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, who destroyed the city after Jesus' resurrection? Many years later, it was the Roman government. The Roman people destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD and destroyed the temple. And Daniel says, those people who destroyed the temple will have a prince one day to come. All right? So, this person, who we will call the Antichrist now, because that's what the book of Revelation starts referring to him, and in other places you've heard about it, this person, the Antichrist, will come somehow or another from the same group of people that destroyed Jerusalem. So is he Italian? Could be. But you also must understand that Roman armies didn't just have Italians in them. Wherever they had big armies based, They also had people of different troops, different countries there in their army. So it could be one of the armies from that surrounding area in the Middle East. So maybe he's Middle Eastern. We don't know for sure. But it is the people who destroyed the temple from that heritage, somehow or another, comes the prince that later becomes the ruler of this empire of Satan, the one world government. And we'll call him the Antichrist now, and you'll see why later on in our study. But look what it says. It says that this person will make a firm covenant with the many or with Israel for one week, for seven years. But in the middle of this week, three and a half years, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate. So this goes right back to the prophecy that Jesus had in Matthew 24, doesn't it? That there will be an abomination of desolations at the midpoint of this seven-week period of Jacob's distress. And We talked about that a few sessions ago. And that's what's happening here. You see, this person who makes a treaty with Israel, And that's why John had the scroll that said, you're going to have to prophesy some more that there's going to be more Gentiles trampling over Jerusalem. And I said, then I think it might be a treaty. Well, that's the treaty I was referring to. This person will make a treaty with the nation of Israel and he will break it. At three and a half years, he will break it and he will do the same thing that Daniel called the abomination of desolation. The same thing that he referred to that Antiochus Epiphanes did. What did Antiochus Epiphanes do? He stopped all worship of God and said you had to worship Zeus. What's this person going to do? Well, we'll see later in Revelation. This person is going to stop all worship of the Lord true God, the one true God, Jehovah God of Jesus, and he is going to declare that they worship him, the Antichrist, the leader of this government. Prince of the same people who destroyed the temple. This prince who's descended from the people that destroyed the temple will make a treaty with Israel and break it three and a half years in. And what will be the reason he breaks it? Because Satan has come down from heaven and has totally gotten vengeful and maybe he possesses this guy, I don't know. But he takes everything up a notch and the government starts trying to wipe out every Jewish person. And then it goes on even worse. It says, when that doesn't work, when the woman escapes, it says in verse 17, then the dragon became angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children who all keep God's commandments and confess they belong to Jesus. Now it says that Satan tries to destroy the woman with a flood of water. Now I don't know what that means. But Daniel also talked about the end coming with water. Okay, the end will come with a flood. What does that mean? Does he try and divert a river to destroy Jerusalem and put it under water? I don't know. I don't think so because Jerusalem's on a hill. I don't know how it could happen. Uh, I heard an old preacher one time say that the water here coming out of the dragon's mouth refers to Gentiles. That water always represents the Gentiles. Well, I'll be honest with you. That sounds plausible that the Gentiles are full of Gentiles trying to take over Jerusalem. But I can't find anywhere in the Bible that water represents Gentiles. Typically, water represents, you know, the spirit, like the living water of God. So I don't know where he got that, and I don't know if that's it or not. I don't know. If you do, send me in a comment below, and uh, maybe you can educate me. But for, however, something happens where he tries to destroy Israel with water. Uh, some sort of metaphor there is going on, and they escape again into the wilderness, Because of the wings of an eagle, uh, somehow a metaphor there, and they are safe. And that's when Satan just tries to wipe out everybody who believes in Jesus. Not just Jewish people, but everybody who tries to follow Jesus. And all this happens, according to Daniel, in the last half of that seventh week, that 70th week. The last half of those seven years known as the time of Jacob's distress. So this treaty is broken halfway into it, or three and a half years, and then all this happens. So we are at that halfway point. The prophets were preaching, and the trumpets were blowing in the first three and a half years, and now Satan has been cast out, destruction is at hand, he's going after everybody, trying to wipe them all out, and the next three and a half years is unfolding, just like Daniel prophesied. So this is going to be a horrible, horrible days of persecution. And how did they survive it? I mean, think about Christians at this time. They got saved after the rapture, so they're there on earth. How did they survive? Well, again, let's look at what the angel said. For the accuser has been thrown down to earth, the one who accused our brothers and sisters before our God day and night, and they have defeated him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of their testimony, and they were not afraid to die. So how do they overcome this persecution? They do it the same way all believers do when they're persecuted. They overcame it with the blood of the Lamb. They knew that they were saved, not because of their works, but because of Jesus' blood. And they survived it and overcame it because of their testimony. What's their testimony? How they got saved and what God's done in their life. They knew God was real because of all the things he did in their life and they had a testimony to share and so they trusted God. They had the blood of the lamb, their testimony and thirdly, they did not love their life even unto death because that's the best way to translate this phrase. You know, the NLT, which normally does a great job, says they weren't afraid to die. That's really not the best translation of Greek. Literally, it says they did not love their life unto death. See, dying is not so much a thing of fear. Most people don't want to die because they love their life so much. And we see that with Christians a lot. Most Christians don't want to give up things in their life to serve God fully. And so when the time comes, they don't want to die because they're still loving life too much. And those are the ones that lots of times will recant when they have to face death for believing in Christ, or they can still have life if they reject Christ and go on. And that's the goal of all persecution, isn't it? It's trying to get you to recant, to reject Christ and go on. And those who love their life more than Jesus will do that. That's why Jesus says you can't love your life. If you love your life and try to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you take up your cross daily and you follow me and you put me first in your life, You die to yourself and follow me. Then I'll give you true life. And it's those people who have already died to themselves and dedicate their lives to serve God that can stand up during persecution because they don't love their life, even until the point of death. So the blood of the lamb, their testimony on what God's done for them, and they don't love their life. They love Jesus more. Those are the three things that allow these people to survive persecution. And those are the three things that allow Christians throughout the last 2,000 years to survive persecution and to head it with their, you know, to survive persecution and go through it with their head held high, even if they have to die for Christ. That's how they do it. And that's something that we as Christians in America should learn now. Because even if we're not at the end, you never know if we're going to have to face persecution. The way things look, I think we will. Well, the chapter ends in something that's very interesting. Revelation chapter 12, verse 18 says, Then he stood waiting on the shore of the sea. Now you may be looking at your Bible and say, hey, I don't have a verse 18. And that's what's interesting about this. Older translations put that phrase, that sentence, then he stood waiting on the shore of the sea as part of chapter 13, verse 1, which makes a lot more sense. That's where it really flows to. But a lot of more modern translations and, and they have earlier and more accurate manuscripts keep it with verse 12. I mean, verse uh, verse 18 of chapter 12. But you got to understand something. You know, the chapters and verses weren't done by John or anybody who God used to write his inspired word. Those were added by man much later so we could find references a lot faster. So it does fit. That this sentence will go with the next chapter. And as you'll see when we study it, it flows real good that way. Additionally, it's interesting that this Greek word, some translations will translate it, then he stood waiting on the shore of the sea, and some will translate it, then I stood waiting on the shore of the sea. And there's evidence to translate it both ways. So which is it? Is it Satan standing on the shore of the sea, or is it John standing on the shore of the sea? Well, personally, I think it's both. John is there watching this vision, and what's the vision he's watching? He's watching Satan, the red dragon on the shore of the sea, fixing to do something. But chapter 12 just leaves John standing there, waiting to see this event. And I'm afraid that's where we're going to have to leave John also, until we study next session, chapter 13. So until next time, keep your eyes to the sky. And read your Bible.
0: Thank you for listening to Todd Talks Bible, sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. For more information, please visit churchdiscipleshipministries.com or check today's show notes for the link. Our teachings are also available on YouTube. Simply search for Todd Talks Bible. I'm Brian Race, encouraging you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also consider sharing this timely teaching with someone you believe needs to hear it. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.